Hello, Heron. Hi, Tom. So, do you have any topics for this week? Um, yeah, I do. Hold on. Let okay. Me, I wrote a few things down here. Very good. Um, oh, yeah, one of them is I wanted to go back to a subject we talked about and, and then left it sort of up in the air. The idea about whether or not the future needed a unified story. Oh, yes. And, um, and my thinking on that is, yes, but it's not a story. It's a meta story that we all have to be in agreement upon. It's, it doesn't really have any content. Mm-hmm. The, the story that I think, if we're going to have a reasonable planet, is, is that everybody has to be pretty damn clear about the nature of stories. Uh, they're welcome to have any goddamn story they want to, but if they start thinking they know that their story is the way the world really is, they need to be hospitalized. Uh-huh. And so I do think we need it. We need a unified meta story, <laughs> hmm. a story about stories. Uh, if without that, uh, I don't see much hope. Yes, in stark contrast to the way it is currently, where there is no hope. Well, the hope is that we will wake up from the trance of language. Yes. <laughs> That's the hope. Yes. But, but yeah, as long as people think they know what reality really is, you can't negotiate. People like that cannot get together and come to some sort of agreement about how they're going to behave. Hmm. So that's interesting. You've you've previously talked about science as being part of the meta story, but a lot of the way that science, particularly in the what I would call fundamentalist atheist community, describes science is very much associated with the way the world really is. Oh, I know. Yeah, that that's uh, that's a problem. Yes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Story. Uh, science is just the best damn story we've come up with so far. Yes. And hopefully, it'll get even better. <laughs> I've let my mind wander, particularly in the past couple of days, associated with this notion of religious persecution that Christians, but a particular group of Christians in this country, frequently say that they are being persecuted by, for example, gay folk. And <laughs> it is something that really strikes me. Well, there's the whole notion of being a victim. And you know, you I just a, read something, you know, yes. I just saw something about, about uh, yeah, how, how the, the, the gays were ganging up and bullying people. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the problem here is that I, in talking about any aspect of this, I don't want the audience to view the fact that I am one of these fundamentalist atheist folk. But it does strike me as very, very strange. It almost strikes me like maybe they need an example of what being persecuted really is like. (laughs) Yeah, we'll show them. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) because, you know, you can kind of feign persecution as they appear to be doing. But um, the tax argument is something that I've always found really fascinating. The fact that churches and religious organizations in Uh. general are treated as charities. Therefore, they don't pay tax, which means that they're not contributing to a broader society as currently defined by the kind of tax codes. Well, they don't need to because they got God. Well, yes. (laughs) You see. They don't need roads because they got God. That's right. Yeah. So... What I found particularly striking, and I think this was around the time that I left the UK, was that Dawkins was arguing that his 
atheist group should get the same kind of charitable treatment. Well, that I like, just just to pull to tweak them. Well, That's a great it's kind idea. of interesting because if you're not paying tax, then you're not paying for education, which means you're probably yeah. eroding the very principles no, that he, Dawkins was supposed yeah, to be yeah, in but he, favor of. He's just doing it to call into question why they're getting. No, no, he was very serious. Well, I mean, he may be serious, but I mean, you know, well. I mean, Dawkins, you'd be, I think it'd be very different to sit down and talk with Dawkins after like three or four glasses of wine. Mm. So my friend Bruce Damer has done that. It was uh cups of tea. It wasn't glasses of wine. Yeah. Um, But I, when I first took over the duties with Biota, I contacted Dawkins. I've contacted Dawkins maybe four times. The first three were very politely to ask if he would be interested in talking about his body of work associated with artificial life. And the final time was for him to give attribution to something that was part of the Biota conference series that his webmaster had pulled from the Biota site and also was uh, deep linking the audio. Less friendly-like in that circumstance. My view is that actually because I wasn't on any of his talking points, and over this period of time he did talk on other podcasts, uh, they were just part of his fundamentalist atheist narrative, yeah. which I think was distinctly different from what he was supposed to be doing, which was to be, you know, an academic talking about science and reason, which yeah. was something distinctly different than what he did. So, yeah, my view is actually that the, and it's interesting because you like um, Sam Harris, I think these folks. I like Sam Harris's arguments. I think I think if there's any Christian who's anywhere has any shred of rational thought left in their mind, mm. that Sam Harris could possibly be helpful for them. Mm. I guess my problem with Sam Harris is that he is just he's not as educated as he needs to be with regards to history. And the kinds of things that I've heard him say seem to indicate that he has no interest in being a polymath, which has always been my critique of Dawkins as well. The people that came prior to Dawkins, folks such as Bertrand Russell, for example, acknowledged where they didn't know things and went and as soon as they acknowledged that, then invested some time in actually learning in those areas. And this current, you know, phase from Dawkins through to Harris, they don't do that. They're not willing to acknowledge that there are gaps in their knowledge. They just think that they can kind of, you know, hum a few bars in a particular direction to cover Well, I I don't know that to be a fact. You know, I mean, I I suspect that may be true some of the time or Mm -hmm. much of the time or Mm -hmm. even maybe all the time with Mm -hmm. them. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you that uh, science is just another story as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. And, and if we find a better one, go for it. Mm. It's just that that's the best story. I mean, for a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that science doesn't even begin to deal with. But mm. that for the stuff it deals with, um, science is clearly the best, most powerful story we've come up with yet. And this notion of a unified view of science, I think, is also problematic. Well, that I didn't say anything about well, it. The, you well, the, I said a, what I want is a, is an, a basic understanding, a story or a meta story about stories that yes. every human, every Earthling who's a member of the Earthling civilization should be tr- thoroughly trained in, mm. and certainly they shouldn't believe it, mm. <laughs> but but they should have a a good understanding of. Uh, what language can and can't do and what its limits are. And, you know, and again, this is just in our story, but I would say I can't imagine a real civilization that that could sustain itself for, say, a million years that didn't 
have that as a fundamental understanding of almost every citizen. Well, Heron, I'm surprisingly sympathetic to your viewpoint here. Uh-oh, I better reconsider this. Yeah, my view is <laughs> we're playing the wrong roles here this evening because you, you seem to have come to me with something that I can't actually argue with on that point. I mean, my what interests me is how far we are from that currently. Oh, yeah. Are there anything, is there anything that we can do? Are there any things that we can enact in very yeah. small ways to start the domino the, effect? The whole the job strikes me as breaking identification with the voice in the head. A and, job. And, thank you. <laughs> How good it's working. Yeah, th that's, um, well, in this case, I mean, I might actually reconsider that and say, yes, the job. Well, it's interesting, <laughs> actually, because I've, I tried last discussion to break apart the notion of the voice in the head from the story. Mm -hmm. And I think it was something, I mean, this is the difficulty associated with a computer theology book, is that it gives you probably 40% of, you know, the ammunition that might start to break apart these kind of concepts. But it's interesting, actually. 40%? Be thankful for anything. Yes, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's not enough. You're right. I was really disappointed uh, when I finished the book. Yes. Um, I got that sense quite yeah, thoroughly. It's, um, but it was, it was worth it. I mean, it took me almost a year, probably more than a year to read, but I took yeah. off for like eight months. Yeah. So, you know, but... Um, I mean, it was it, it wasn't a waste of time. I mean, it it provoked all sorts of thoughts and considerations that I probably wouldn't have had any other way. Mm. But I was looking for something, and <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it was I was looking for, but I am sure that I didn't find it. Mm. <laughs> yes, I I own a copy, and I will be donating my copy to charity relatively shortly. So. <laughs> okay. Yes, I also own. Uh, Kurzweil's last book, and I think I've already donated that. Which character. one? The mind thing? Yes, the mind How thing. to create a mind. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there is potential. In fact, it's getting... It's funny even saying it out loud, because I think I mentioned this maybe maybe four, five months ago, that through this conscious in the cloud, we are getting closer and closer to Kurzweil. Unwrapping slowly the onion, moving towards him. So, uh. I think probably the person will get... or I'm, There are a few people I'd like to invite to talk next. But they are all somewhat connected with, with Reiki. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think we are getting closer Reiki. and closer to Reiki. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you kind of have names, Aaron. I mean, what, what is, what is life without names? Um, well, I don't know. Kurzweil works for me. <laughs> I call him Kurzweil sometimes. And when I want to be slightly more, um, Familiar. Friendly. Yeah, friendly like. <laughs> Ray K. Ray yeah, K. Yeah, 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 sure, okay. I got it, yeah. So... I'm just curious, I mean, is that some... That all his friends call him that? I, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that his, you know, sort of official nickname? Hey, Ray K, how's it doing, man? Ray K. I don't know. We, we need to... I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure if Google folk are allowed to let that kind of information out to the company. I'm sure you could set up microphones. You could do, like, a little NSA thing. On, yeah. On well, we could just campus. ask the NSA. They probably have already done that. Yes, so. yes. Yeah, well, one thing that came to me through the week, and I can't recall if I actually said this out loud on a stone ape, but around the time that Bin Laden was killed, my immediate assumption was that the reason that they didn't release the photos was because they completely viscerated him with bullets. And that's actually come out this week. 
This is folks. He was just a bag of flesh. Well, not even that. Like literally, he was just completely viscerated. That they fired so many shots at him that he was virtually unrecognizable. Yeah. You know, we kind well, that of sounds reasonable. I mean, yeah. you got seven or eight people, and they each put ten rounds in somebody. <laughs> you know, yeah. and probably with the ammunition they had, yeah. no, exactly. you know, you wouldn't expect there to be much left. Yeah. Yes. So, do you have any other things you'd like to discuss? Well, well, in well, that's related to this other thing. This I, I wrote somewhere recently about worthy citizens of Earth, mm. and. And I was trying to think about that. You know, that's a sort of scary proposition. I mean, we, our whole sense of citizen, like if you're born in America, you're an American, by mm. golly. <laughs> you mm. know, and and I'm thinking, is that is that really workable? Do we, do we need to have some sort of basic uh, level of understanding in order to be a real citizen of, of the planet? I mean, it's not like we're going to just murder people who don't <laughs> make it, but... Well, anyway, it's a question that I, I'm leaning towards. Yeah, you know, of course, there there may very well be disabled people who need to be taken care of who, who can't even deal with taking any kind of a test, you know. And uh, but I'm just I'm talking about for people who are going to become participating citizens in Earth. Is there some minimal level of cogitation that they need? To, to do that. I mean, this is very much part of your rap heron associated with what the the utopian future that you describe contains. And I've always been more hesitant about that because my view is, particularly at this stage in my life, I'm making firm choices to reject citizenship. I don't think I'm going to destroy my Australian citizenship explicitly, although I have considered it at some time. Mm. And I'm certainly not going to become a US citizen because I think the whole process really demeans <laughs> you know just it's ludicrous i yeah. mean the whole thing is just nuts the i think there are several is- people offering citizenships in earth you why don't you, you but you don't want to even do that huh screw citizenship <laughs> i mean look yeah what, yeah they, they want you to wear ah, well then are you I gonna mean, are you no no it's earth <laughs> The well, only border will be around Australia. Yeah, you've already you've already identified <laughs> that in your yeah. narrative. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So no, I think citizenship is an outdated concept. I really I find it very strange. Well, well what we about currently? Okay. Well, how do you deal then with if you're going to live in a civilization where everything is free mm-hmm. and uh, and you owe a certain obligation? Well, that's your definition. I no, well, I'm talking. About, that's right. I'm talking yeah. about the kind of world I'm yeah. trying to imagine one that's as ideal as possible, but still actually can match reality. Uh oh. Yeah, I would. I know. Excuse me. I'm sorry. You caught me on that one. But the, whether it's, po- you know, uh, so many utopian things strike me as just absurd because they they take care of everything we need, but nothing about the obligations of citizens. And as far as I'm concerned, rights without obligations are meaningless. Well, let me put this to you: to get to the stage where you have a community agreement that no one has the one true story. That in and of itself should allow the people at that point in time to start defining what they want at yeah. that time. Yeah, you're right. That 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 goes a long way. If and the repercussions that far, of that yeah. are, are... Give something to these amazing people in terms of their ability to actually define what they want to define in the scope of the Well, I, see, I don't care whether we call it citizenship or not. The, the, the issue is whether you have the vast majority of humans in this system able to operate together and count on each other. 
So, uh, another interesting news story through the week that maps onto this very well is a situation in Israel, where the Israelis have this class of ultra-Orthodox Jews that don't have to work. Originally, they, and they don't get drafted either. No, they don't get drafted either. That, except that's well, anyway, yeah. So, so interesting. What do you mean they don't have to work? So when Israel was founded, there were about four hundred of these ultra orthodox Jews who were supposed to replace the the I don't know Jewish intellectual tradition that had been decimated in Europe through the Holocaust. And the idea was that this small group would be able to do their religious study and would be paid for by the state. Funnily enough, however, people want to subscribe to this thing. It sounds like a good gig for a lot of people. Yeah, really. I can go over that. (laughs) When you're not working, you've got a lot more time to procreate. So they have a far higher birth rate (laughs) than the rest of the Israeli population. And how do they determine who's in this group and who's not? Well, you see, it's very easy. It's like a calling. The people have. No, I mean, how's the government um, this distinction? Well, they wear funny hats and they have okay, hair. Okay, and so they you come in the... and you look like an Orthodox yes. and they're or ultra-Orthodox exactly. and therefore you are. Yeah. And you get the exemption. Shit, could I do... I mean, all you gotta do is look the part? Heron, you'd need more hair, but you're on the way. Let's well, it could take me this. a while to grow it, but I could get there. <laughs> the thing that strikes me as very interesting is the description that the Israeli government portrayed that in order to get into a productive life path, you need to be conscripted because through the networks that you create through conscription, yeah. it then leads on to employment following. And the reason that these people are not entering employment is not because the state has marked the fact. It has paid them not to. Exactly. It's because they're not in military service, so they can't get buddy-buddy right. with people yeah. that own but, factories. Yeah, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Curious, curious <laughs> problems that Israel is facing in this context. But, um, look, I, I mean, my view is that is similar for what you're portraying here, that if... If dutiful service is a requirement for a small period of time, then yeah, you might get years. all these all these other kind of curious byproducts associated with that. And although I'm not advocating ultra orthodoxy here in your perspective, my sense is that look, some people actually like to work on particular tasks, and yeah, I think absolutely, particularly, I mean. Well, there's nothing to prevent them from doing mm. any damn thing they want to. Mm. But that's a separate. They've got 11 months to do that. Yes, yes, and this is and and I would say also if their particular passion actually lines up with some actual job function, some really basic fundamental need for humans to do stuff, then they're, they're even better off. Mm. Yeah, how that? I mean, the details of how something like that work are very tricky. Uh, it's it strikes me that. You know, that there are, that somehow we, we probably, I mean, people would have to like get qualified in say four areas or something. There, mm. You know, once we understand sort of what it takes to maintain a civilization for a million years in terms of, you know, all the, fi- just the physical requirements of it. Mm. And if that was properly automated and computerized with that, it's still going to require some people. You're never going to get to a situation where you don't need people. Mm. So, but assuming we could get rid of probably at least 90% of the work, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, then the re- whatever's left, whatever actually requires the presence of human beings 
we, I'm willing to split that up evenly with everybody else. I mean, that mm. seems like a reasonable compromise. Whatever needs to be done, well, let's do it. We'll do it. And I don't see any other way. How else are we going to do that? So through the week, I planted my garden for the year, which is something that I do relatively ritualistically, sometimes as late as April. But how many year, how many square feet are? Oh, so it starts with seeds. I planted 120 seeds, and what I do is then divide those into. They're in little punnet pots, and oh, I divide okay. them into more pots and build it up accordingly. Oh, do you and do all this indoor or no, no, outdoors, your patio outdoors, or do yeah, you have yeah. a, do you have a ground, a plot no, no, or this I whole thing? I just have a patio. So I do this over time and basically I weed through the plants until I end up with typically 15 or so tomatoes and maybe a dozen chili plants. But this year I'll probably have more tomatoes and more chilies just by the necessity of the amount that I've planted. And it's a very relaxing pursuit. Real? I mean, full-size tomatoes? Oh, yes. Cherry um, tomatoes? No, or? last year it was cherries. This year I'm yeah. doing full-size. Okay, cool. And I'm also doing three varieties of chili peppers. Well, with that many plants, you can do all, everything. Yes. You don't need to pick. It's interesting, actually, yeah. because it's these kind of skills, I think, are the important skills that need to be maintained. I was talking with a co-worker this week about Girl Scouts. He has a daughter who must be seven or eight, I think. And all her friends are joining Girl Scouts. And for whatever reason, potentially ethnic or religious reasons, he is not particularly in favour of his daughter joining the Girl Scouts. And I am relatively, I mean, obviously the Boy Scouts, but I'm relatively sympathetic to young men going out in the woods and surviving on their wits for a few days. And, you know, learning how to erect a tent and tie knots and... Yeah, but there's a lot of other bullshit in the Boy Scouts. That's the problem. Well, you see, (laughs) when I was there, and true, this is 30 years ago now, you could still pick and choose. And I have compared the Boy Scout literature, and you're right, there is some additional nonsense. Truth be told, there was additional nonsense when I went there. I mean, basically, they kicked me out because I had really, It really depends on on the the, The the scoutmasters and all this kind of stuff. But in general, irrespective of all the pollution that you get through these things, I think it is moderately a net positive. And ultimately, it teaches a degree of life skills that I think are relatively important through. Well, if, even not the skills, just the experience mm. of being in nature, yes, as opposed to being in the city. Certainly, you know that alone. That's enough, right there. Yes, <laughs> you know to but justify also a sense that you have the abilities to survive a lot more on a lot more yeah, you know, you basic sur- subsistence. Yeah. yeah, you could survive for maybe a week before you died. Well, <laughs> if you've been a Boy uh, Scout. A week and a half, two weeks in some <laughs> sense. Maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah. yeah. So, yes, <laughs> it is interesting that there are certain things in my life that I refuse to give up. And planting a garden annually, irrespective yeah. of the fact that we do live relatively in the city, we do live near major freeways, which means... Oh, it's a that, miracle. You know, but nonetheless, to have those skills, because they're relatively basic skills. Yeah. To be able well, to Well, I don't even plants. have to do anything. My tomatoes yeah. just grow. Reseed <laughs> I go out there year. and pick them. Yes. You know, it's just great. Yes. <laughs> what a skill. Yes. <laughs> I just moved to the right place. <laughs> so, 
Yes. But I think all these things are important. And when you create a, you know, this kind of utopian vision of society, you need to appreciate that these are the kind of skills that need to be maintained. Well, even maybe not. Well, maybe not. In fact, yeah, the those soylent, may be... the soylent purple kind of. Yeah, yeah. I expect uh, we will do away with food. I mean, that's yeah. it's so much more efficient, man. We can get rid of kitchens and restaurants and every. Imagine the whole, every industry, all the people involved in the fucking food industry. Mm. Imagine if none of them had anything to do. But consider a kibbutz here, returning to the Israel thing. There's no glamour in the kibbutz, but they're still, you know, gathering food and preparing it for a community. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, again, that's part of the old order. I mean, that was, I mean, that was what life was about (laughs) for the last, you know, half a million years for at least or forever, really. Yeah. Yeah. But as I was saying, I think, I think we are. In the well, I'm with Kurzweil on this. It's, we are beyond biology now. Mm. Biology is part of it, mm. but uh, it's no longer the central issue in evolution. When I was considering potential topics for this evening, something rather curious came to me. About 20 years ago, in fact, 20 years ago this December, I lived in Malaysia for a period of time, and I lived there on and off for about six months over a year period. And it was absolutely fascinating to me because I was, I guess, 17, 18 at the time. I did a lot of traveling. Um, I met, you know, loose women through the experience as well. I mean, it was, it was really, um, uh, a journey for me. <laughs> How old were you? It's, um, 17, 18. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. What a wonderful. So, <laughs> yeah. The so thing, lucky you. <laughs> The thing that through this experience that struck me was how curious it is to go to another country, another society, and start to realise all the strange eccentricities that the society has adopted. I've talked previously in Malaysia associated with the rejection of English and the movement to Bahasa uh, in terms of my generation. So the people I met of my generation typically didn't have very good English because they had not been taught English in schools. But another phenomena was this notion of Bumiputra, which means people of the earth, which meant that in Malaysia there are racially defined social strata. There are the Malays that are at the top social strata, so they fill positions of public office, they're basically like royalty. Then you have the merchant class, which is typically the ethnic Chinese. And then you have the Indian population, who basically fulfill other duties, but quite curiously, typically, you know, will work in menial labour jobs so they can send their children to the UK or to Australia to study to be doctors, never to return to Malaysia. Last week, we were talking about a series of experiences that I'd had watching a documentary on airline crashes and near misses. And as we were doing this, the whatever went on in Malaysia or over Malaysia or over the Thai, um, you know, Vietnam area started to kind of filter into the news media. And I was pondering through the week how the news media has actually avoided the kind of curious institutional corruption that you get in Malaysia associated with this Bumiputra phenomena. And then I noticed today, I think it was uh, Christian Science Monitor, was the first like major news organization to actually start talking about what a curious country Malaysia is <laughs> in terms of firstly this this notion that the Malays hold court 
but secondly, that they can never acknowledge any failing or corruption, which is what is happening currently associated with this Malaysian Airlines situation. And what's even more curious is that the media's narrative is now so viscerated in all possible directions that it really is Estonian paradox of the notion of the story or the truth. Uh, which I think is very curious, kind of mapped onto this notion of what Malaysia is. It's interesting, actually, because when I think about Malaysia as a phenomena, this is exactly the same narrative of African-Americans and other minorities in the US. I mean, their claim would be that basically, you know, the white folk have, have, have filled a number of echelons in this country. And although it's not as formalized as it is in Malaysia... Yeah. There's still very curious kind of stratas that are created in this environment. There's a lot of inertia here. <laughs> yes. But in Malaysia, it's actually law. I mean, it's curious law with regards to the fact that it's illegal to convert Malays <laughs> away from Islam. So that is actually like a criminal offense. And if Malays oh, stop yeah. being practicing Muslims, then that is also a, you know, a problem that needs to be dealt with by the courts. But in this circumstance where you have all this kind of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, this probably is completely off your, you know, radar, Heron. But the chief opposition leader in Malaysia was recently reconvicted of sodomy. The people who've been in power for the past 40 years in Malaysia, whenever an opposition figure steps up, mysteriously, their DNA is found on a mattress <laughs> and they're, they're sodomy guilty lock them up, throw away the key kind of individuals. It's a very, very strange country in that light. And to see what's going on with this. Well, what are people, I mean, what are the people who live there? I mean, is there a, a sort of mass of people who just are sort of there and not really part of any of this shit or. So it's interesting. My experience there, and I dated a <clears throat> Chinese, well, she was Chinese, from Taiwan, um, although she was a Malaysian citizen for six or eight months in Australia, she moved to Australia, um, was that the average person on the street, be they Chinese and in even some cases Malay, are so distantly removed, like the political process has actually been removed from their existence. It's not so even they just what they just go to work and do what yeah, they have to I mean, do to survive yeah, and come yeah. home and watch TV or whatever or do other things. I well, mean, they watch TV, don't I, they? I mean, aren't they? Isn't that television what? in Malaysia is very, very? I don't imagine. I mean, I don't imagine. Really, I mean, people population. actually do other things yeah, if, if TV is available. The, the thing that you miss wow. here is the quality of food in Malaysia. People in Malaysia are considerably more. They'll get out on the streets. They'll meet. They're considerably more social and they don't you know okay yeah it's a 24 culture. hours yeah. the whole notion of sitting at home and watching television is so okay. withdrawn huh. so, i mean so is that rare is that rare there well it's considerably more rare than the way television is consumed in this country well it's ubiquitous here i mean yes. it's everywhere i yes. mean there is well you, know, you don't watch you TV, you think people well no, I've seen the evidence. Well, <laughs> increasingly, I think people are watching less TV even in No, the they're sky. watching YouTube now. Yes. <laughs> no, but I mean people sitting in front of a screen. I think YouTube... I don't want to besmirch YouTube here, Heron. I think YouTube is I'm not besmirching it. It's just superior. about... Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, almost anything is better than TV. And especially people can create their own YouTube yeah. as well. well. I, I, listen, my favorite save, saying in this area is that uh, the, the whole thing about TV is that it will waste your time for you, but on YouTube, you have to waste your own time. 
Well, that's very interesting. And, and that's good, because the thing is, when the YouTube video is over, everything comes to a stop. But on television, it never ends. It just goes on and on from one thing yelling at you to another. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think your consumption, your your former addict status here. Yeah. Defines your view associated with media, and I'm not. Talking well, I can about also television. listen. I can yeah. also talk about. Um, I used to to walk every evening mm-hmm. for about three miles, and I lived in a fairly nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I'd walk in the evening when it was dark, and mm-hmm. I would say eight out of ten houses I passed, you could see the blue screen. I know. It's you know, that I a dark well. room, yeah. <laughs> you know, and a blue blasting flickering screen. Yeah. Well, now, thankfully, people are, aside from YouTube, paying my rent and watching Netflix and a variety of other... other. Well, actually, there are, the Internet is vastly better than, tel- than commercial yes. television. That's what my experience was. Yes. And that, for me, was uh, addictive. And you're never sure now whether blue screens are Netflix, Hulu, or no, no, you services. can just te- no, you don't know what it is, but you know it's, uh, you know it, you know it's video. You know they're looking at video, whether it's uh, off a television or a, a computer, you can't tell. But so this has been interesting this week in particular because one of our favorite topics, or at least our favorite topics over recent recordings, has been associated with. Well, two two little old ladies in Australia. <laughs> and through the week, our listener, Jim, who also knows these two little old ladies, got together with them. And he told me in advance, actually, that they're coming to San Francisco. They will be here in July. Jim is highly in favour, as you are, of me creating a documentary about these two. <laughs> To the point where... I'm not so hot on the idea now. See, I was going for the old ladies in the comfy chair. And now you've seen photos and more And some cats, too. Some nice cats. Yeah. And, you know. So, I, I'm, you know. But now, but now, 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 it's, now we're in reality. a definitely more kinky area. <laughs> the thing that interests me about this is that Jim had them over. He invited them over for dinner. And he said to me very proudly that he was playing them S.A., <laughs> so they heard our discussion well that's what interested me at the time and then i realized that they were in the vicinity now sa as he pointed out also stands for south australia and the recording that i took of them what a year and a half ago now maybe two years maybe a year and a half ago was called the south australian takeover show on model rail radio so he actually pointed out that he was playing yeah. to them that audio but i think he's also talked to them in broad brushstrokes associated with this phenomena of transgender model railroaders. And as I know, Jim will be listening to this audio. He can fill in the gaps. But I feel this week... Ah, here's the other part to this. So, as part of my 10 hours of Netflix, I found a documentary on Netflix called The Prodigal Sons, which is about a transgender woman returning to Montana. (laughs) And really, actually, it's about a series of other things. I'm not going to spoil it for the listeners. But again, when you say a transgendered woman, meaning she used to be a man, yes. that means she's now a woman. Okay. She used to be the quarterback on the football team. <laughs> In fact, she's one of these and, curious... And she's probably still six foot three. Yeah, no, she's huge. <laughs> but actually, she she is a remarkably... Because of the, um, the, what are they called, the hormones that they get... 
the earlier they get the hormones, the easier they pull it off, basically, associated with yeah. appearance change. So yeah. she actually, and she's had quite a bit of surgery as well. She works as a um, magazine publisher, so she's, you know, she's got some oh, money perfect. to fix herself. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So th- the curious thing through this was that I realized, in no uncertain terms, I must have seen this documentary last weekend. That this is very, very real and it touches on emotions that I am not privy to currently. This is a deep, personal, emotional story that I better get myself prepared for if I'm going to do this. Yeah, thing. that's exactly you know, what I was See, I don't, to me, it's not about model railroad. I mean, that's just mm. a little side story mm. to these people. It's about these two people mm. and what they've been through yeah. and what it, what it means to, to, to change your sex. Yes. And still look like a man. Well, in some yeah. cases. I mean, I think... Well, would- well, no, I know. You know, yeah. anyway, is that, that making that story real and personal so that other people can understand that, not just as some weirdness, but yeah. two actual people who dealt with this thing, and, and especially old people who, you know, who can reflect back on... Yeah. On things, I, I think that could be really fascinating. Yes. Like I say, model railroad. I, I mean, that I I can easily see that that might only passingly come into the film. Certainly, yes. So writing this thing up P- probably is comic relief. Potentially so. <laughs> yeah. So I went back and actually listened to their audio interview that I did for Model Rail Radio, and the main thing that I forgot was that they have they have live birds that make their own kind of talking point contributions throughout the audio recording. Ah. So it's sufficiently um, fractured by these loud chirps and screeches that I thought I couldn't pass this to you to listen to as audio because it would drive you nuts. Really? No, it doesn't. I don't no, know, Aaron. No, no, really. I mean, when you... I mean, I can play about with it here, but I mean, when when you can't do anything about it, yeah. when what you have is what you have, yeah. you just go ahead. Certainly. So... I'm still motivated to continue with this project. When I brought this up with one of my co-workers, he pointed out to me, so what does this mean for your comic book project, Tom? <laughs> well, they could go together. They're not necessarily two different things. Well, the distinction <laughs> the distinction with the comic book project and this project is that the comic book project requires parcels of money over a long period of time. And this project, I think, is actually probably considerably cheaper in a shorter period of time. So the comic book project is an interesting project, particularly because I've kind of done it in a two-step phase. But I think actually this documentary, I mean, my plan is to generate a two-page synopsis, which I can probably do over the next couple of weeks, present that to the folks at work, but also just present that to yeah. a few other people. Yeah, get some say, feedback. Yeah, get some feedback. I'll probably Yeah, let me rip it I up. Probably yeah. I probably will. I probably will. After that whole field of chaos uh, debacle, I'm, I'll, I'll pass it to you as well. Yeah. So it's, well, you'd be a fool not to. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, yeah, my, my sense is I will probably be working on that sometime over the next couple of weeks because I'm going to be spending periods of time in hospitals yeah. and things. So I want to kind of work my way through uh, that process. Yeah, you want to be clear. This is, I mean, uh, to me, this would be a major undertaking. I mean, to produce this, I mean, it's a big, big de- deal. You know? It's emotion. I- the thing that strikes me about what I do in general is that most people would run screaming from Model Rail Radio or this Stone Ape recording or a variety of other things that I do. The only thing that concerns me about this project is that I'm dealing with two people who I've met for a brief period of time who have their own emotion. Uh, I think they both have children. They're both... And I want to give them the best possible 
environment to tell their story. And this has required a certain, you know, this is why I've actually been studying some documentaries recently yeah. to get a sense of how do I best frame this. So when when I'm presented with the opportunity, when I'm presented yeah. with the yeah. time frame, how do yeah. I get the best you can go in and get the job done. You know, yeah, right. And what skills do I need through that process? Yeah. Because talking to you, and I found this when I did Conscious in the Cloud, that actually being a physical form in an environment doing things is very different than being a voice in the ether. Yep. You need to frame things considerably different differently. World. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 The video having cameras being in someone's house yeah. or traveling around and take. Yeah. That's this is a. It might actually be worth your while. Well, of course, if you're doing it with Netflix. They're going to provide. You're going to be the executive producer. They'll provide the people who who well, let's can see. advise. These will all who be knows? your advisors. This is an unknown yeah. currently. Yeah, Aaron. yeah, and because I, there's a yeah. lot to know, yeah. and and you don't need to know it. You know, you just need to have people working for you who do know it. Something that has struck me about the field of chaos project was the idea of creating a role playing game to go along in parallel to it. And I've come back to this this week because I need to re-engage with at least one of the two artists that I selected to draw maybe three or four images to fit into the role-playing game book that will go out in parallel with one of these rewrites. Part of this component has been associated with probability and the way in which you view probability. We've talked in the past in somewhat abstract terms associated with kind of understanding understanding various relationships, um, human relationships through, you know, dice rolls and these kind of things. The notion of taking some of the abstract ideas that I've explored through simulation in Noble Ape and creating considerably more tangible things from that. I seem to recall our listener Lorraine was particularly excited by this insight. And doing this, and also in parallel to this, obviously, I created a YouTube channel that got a considerable number of nerd eyeballs in a relatively short period of time. Amazon has marketed to me over the past, well, week and a half, dice. Vast quantities of dice. To the point where I've thrown down $30 in the past week to get two different large groups of dice. And I put together a YouTube video for each of them as a review online associated. I, I'm confused here. Mm -hmm. Dice. You mean cubes with dots on them? So because because that would be boring, Heron, what I'm talking about here is what is kind of popularly referred to in the vernacular as dungeon dice. Or, you know, four-sided, six-sided, eight-sided, okay, yeah, ten-sided, twelve-sided, twenty-sided dice. Sure, yeah, okay. Yeah, with numbers on them or some symbol yes. or something. Yes. Yeah, yes. right, okay. These are game dice. Exactly. Now. Okay, I got you. So through the week, I have had 200-plus of these dice just kind of floating around so I can do reviews on them. And now I've kind of neatly packed them up and put How them How big away. are they? Um, they vary in size from about half an inch to an inch in diameter. Okay. And and the minimum size, the minimum number of sides is oh, what? four. Four sides. Oh, so they actually have tetrahedrons. Yes. Okay. So tetrahedrons. So they're just going all the way up to as, as far as they can go until it loses. No, actually, any no, they stop at 20. You can well, get yeah, 30 but I, so and I'm 100 saying, sided, yeah. but they uh, didn't go that far. It was just the 20. Well, and the well yeah. If you're talking about something an mm -hmm. inch uh, or mm -hmm. even two inches in diameter uh, going beyond 20, mm -hmm. 
would be sort of pointless. Well, yeah, the 30-sided dice still fit into that area, but it is... Yeah. So this notion of probability mapping onto reality or, or perceptions is something that comes from my relatively early childhood that I was just able to embody through no blame. But I kind of returned to my roots through this week, holding these curious things in my hands and just rolling them to get a sense of the fact that this is what has to be embodied in this role-playing game. I'd written the role-playing game very tightly associated with six-sided dice, but I realised actually this week that the tactile joy of these other different-sided dice, and also the fact that the folks who would be purchasing this role-playing game would be very much interested in multi-sided dice, that that made more sense. Yeah, I mean, you could have two different, two, or several different die they well, could use. Typically, you know? what, yeah. what is commonplace now is seven of these dice. A four-sided dice, a six-sided dice, oh, an okay. eight-sided dice. All right, yeah. Two kinds of ten-sided dice, one for uh, digits and one for tens, <laughs> and a 12 and a 20-sided dice. Seven dice total. Which is pretty well standard now. God, for, well, that's, that's, that just I mean, I don't know, but that just seems like overkill. To well, me. my feeling was always that as well and i, I think would think some, like three or four different ones would be quite enough well it's interesting because typically the folks that create these games have introductory knowledge of probability uh, but the curious relationships like if you roll three six-sided dice or you know four 12-sided dice and the fact that the summations of these create nice bell curves. I mean, all this kind of stuff is outside of the realm of yeah, most it, early it has game Yeah, very little to do with, with uh, gameplay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you, it has to play. Yes. I'm thinking three or four a die at the most for specific kinds of situations. You have more options than you might in others. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Well, you know, that, that's part of that whole da- going back to DOS thing. You know, people mm. resisted the GUI interface because mm. you know, they liked it complex. Mm. They liked it so that nobody else understood what the fuck they were doing. Yeah, in our smaller <laughs> you know? cubes, I have a someone who tests my work basically in the cube next to me, and she only uses the command line for everything. Mm-hmm. And I find it really quite frustrating. I was working with her today, and she for every does she have a personal computer that she uses re- that? She is this just a, a work policy for her? Is this no, her life? I don't know. I mean, she when look, she really is an inspiring person. That might make sense in that environment. She I mean, she came here from China. She worked in a um like a textile factory in China. She moved here in the mid to late seventies when it was. Still Still fruit orchards. Yeah. Uh, she's worked at Hewlett Packard almost exclusively, but a few other offshoots of Hewlett Packard. And now she's at Netflix. And um, she has post university children who one is a doctor and the other one is like a <laughs> artisanal. She, she's doing good. Yes. Man, she's done well for so herself. So, my view is that when How I say nice. she uses DOS, when she uses the command line where yeah. I would use. It really is probably more her life experience in that light. She likes to know... Well, she likes that she knows Unix. I mean, she likes the fact that the Unix command line is basically something that she's... Whereas I'm all drag and drop. Like, I'm just all... And on the Mac, I've done a variety of things where I can see all the invisible directories and all the invisible files. And I just... All that kind of finding the right directory. Yeah, well, some people like that stuff. And and some people already know it, you know? It it seems sort of pointless to to learn it if you don't need to. Yeah. Again, it's like, I, I don't need to be a mechanic to drive a car. You know, if it doesn't work, I take it to my mechanic. Otherwise, I go to work, I come back, I go to the store, 
good. <laughs> it seems slightly hy- hypocritical for me to talk about this in this light because when I put the command line environment together with GUI and Noble Ape, I mean, I think that actually it's not one or the other, it's the both together that provides really interesting relationships. Well, for people like you who understand yeah. the command line. Yeah. I, you know, I, my friend John, my computer consultant mm-hmm. guy, um, sometimes walks me through command line things to get some stuff done if I'm stuck on something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I've, so I've, I've learned a, a few things, but, you know, that's just, I'm never going to learn that. I don't care. I'm not going to learn it. I can see the power in it. I can see that if you know that already, that, that allows you to do things that you can't do any other way. I mean, in but, Noble Ape, it relates to massive amounts of information and accessing, like, lots of different data, which, which ultimately you could do graphically. And it would just require, like, new kinds of graphical interpretation yeah, yeah. in order to just... You know, this, relate, this relates to something that's been floating around in my head for the last, I don't know, a couple months maybe. And I, it still hasn't formulated itself quite explicitly, but it has to do with the idea of mental terrain. Hmm. And, and it's related to this idea that I think we're all autistic mm-hmm. in one degree or another. Mm-hmm. And, and basically what I'm seeing is that what it means to be me or you or anything is that we all have, say, this, this landscape that has 10,000 uh, designations on it for specific little skills or uh, things we could pay attention to or not pay attention to or sensitive to or not or whatever. 10,000 of these things for all sorts of aspects of the environment. And that basically what we get is a sort of random distribution. Well, maybe not random, probably not random. But uh, it, you, you look out over that landscape and you'll see there are certain places where there, there's a lot of that and other places where there's none of this. And and that that's what we are, in a sense, is is the sum total of all these thousands of finely tuned patterns that our nervous systems have developed over the years. And there's a kind of terrain there. And and uh, but I like I say, I suspect the majority of people. Well, and of course, culture and language is going to have a lot to do with this. But even if you just did this for dogs, you'd still see some similarities. Well, I don't know. This is still really vague to me, but it it sounds like it's not unrelated to what might be happening in Noble Ape. So we discussed this maybe three and a half years ago, and you were sickly at the time. It's one of the sickly recordings. So when we started talking about more abstract notions of mathematics, topology, and terrain, it kind of disintegrated very rapidly. I think what interests me now in Noble Ape is... The well, it's interesting actually because I'm I'm going to talk about this in uh, the SETI talk next week. Actually, we won't be recording next Friday because of the SETI talk. But the exploration there is more about what it's not a Gaia phenomena. It's more a kind of collective one associated with how we can understand like pro- processing of consciousness, which I think might work well in the SETI crowd. What you're describing here is that aside from a kind of spatial topology that we generate of what the outside world appears to us as being, which is very interesting because you shorten distances that you're familiar with. This is space consult here. Yeah. You're describing that there are like knowledge locations in space in our internal mapping and our ability to have some close to us kind of improves our ability to exist or survive. 
and that's not well. I'm just I'm, I'm okay. trying to say what you're saying. No, but and, and, and so far I don't think that's at all what okay, I was so trying to say. So I failed. <laughs> reiterate again what you were well trying to again. Say. I'm I'm creating a, a kind of abstract space. Okay, mm-hmm. a plane mm-hmm. in front of you, ten thousand uh, squares. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whatever that is, a hundred by hundred, hundred whatever. Okay, there you go, a hundred by hundred, and that in one of those, I was thinking, one of the things I've got is a is a really strong sensitivity uh, sensitivity to uh, symmetry. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't help it. You know, I I sit in the toilet at the gym mm-hmm. and look at the tiles on the floor, mm-hmm. and and I'm and I'm playing games with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you Have know? you returned to the gym, or is this just an no? I don't. It's just that was the. Mm-hmm. That was a place where it became really clear to Certainly. me, you know, that probably most people who go in there aren't doing what I'm doing. They're mm. doing something else. And it's the same thing. One of those 10,000 square is this uh, sensitivity to symmetry, and, and you can get that set low or high. Mm-hmm. And right next to that is uh, something else uh, quite specific, though, like, but, but still abstract. And anyway, all 10,000 of those, uh, when... What we are is just how those things seem to be set. Mm. And and if you look, you'll see probably if we – I mean, it shouldn't be difficult to actually create this abstract space and you know, make a mm-hmm. few assumptions and, and test it. But that there, will, there are going to be places where you'll see ridges and valleys and, and um, all sorts of patterns – uh, this notion of nearest neighbor is interesting, which is mm. a, a grid phenomena. Yeah. And the fact that you're portraying one dimension, but there will be two dimensions in your grid. And it, it's interesting because topologically, there may be things that are completely remote from other things. You may actually have this grid be fractured because there are some components that are just that don't have any neighbors on some side. Well, it depends on how we map it. See, I mean, you got, suppose we are able to identify 10,000 traits. Well, mm-hmm. how do, how do we lay them out? Well, that's part of the problem. Yeah, that's part of the problem. But almost any way we lay them out will be a start. And, and we can just lay them out in, in whatever fucking logic seems to come because we really don't know. Mm. And then run some tests and see what, what happens. Mm. And then maybe from that, you'll get, okay, well, that didn't work. Part of the assertion that you're making in the 100 by 100 grid is that there would be some, not necessarily symmetry, but there would actually be a gradient topology between the various points. If, so the nearest yeah, neighbor that, would be but, sufficiently yeah, close to... Yeah, but that still depends upon how we map uh, the traits to the grid. You know, one, I mean, unless we can find some really obvious natural way to do that, um, then, then when you plug in the data, what you, you're going to get visually could be wildly different depending upon how you've assigned the traits to the grid. Things that are in, really closely connected to another could end up anywhere there because you wouldn't know. Well, yeah. you would. Maybe you would, actually, after the first what you could see is that if there are some high points, maybe you could put all the high points together. You know, once you get a start, then you can change it. The notion of a topology of a 100 by 100 grid that is predetermined actually goes quite strongly against no play. Well, I don't understand what you mean by predetermined. Well, the fact that you have an exi- the fact that there is a topological map that you're describing qualities at 100 by 100 where each of the grid points is a particular specifiable quality, like a scale um, yeah, value. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, like I say, like being aware, like exactly. a, a, a sensitivity yeah. to symmetry, something that like So that. if you can define it in these kind of context, 
context, although you could create an artificial life simulation to embody that, the nature of emergence through that would be well, well, you could use natural selection at that point. You could vary it randomly, you know, and see what works. See what see what's mated and reproduced accordingly. Yeah. I guess, yes, in the notion of kind of perfectly predetermined grids, you would get some interesting variation through that. Well, this is just a first approximation. Yes. You know? it just, I find it useful in thinking about people, though. When I look at people and I realize, yeah, well, they got a whole bunch of this, but that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, they could, you know, just because, yeah, yeah, just because they like baseball doesn't necessarily mean, or because they like model railroads doesn't necessarily mean they're idiots. Well, the interesting part about (laughs) this is this returns very much back to the notion of the role-playing game, because what you're doing here is creating, or you're describing definable traits and then attributing numbers to them, which is exactly what role-playing games do. And it's interesting, actually, because it is a division in some regard from what I do with Noble 8, because although a number of the def- the traits are there, there are ethereal components that don't in any way map back to definable traits, which are the points that I always find particularly yeah. interesting. Well, that's the challenge, is to find some some measurable trait that actually maps to these really mm. sort of abstract ideas we've got floating around. Mm. And well, if we can't do that, then we're just left with our nice little abstraction. No, not necessarily at all. I mean, I think the to have something that is abstract and produces emergent behavior that can't be predetermined is actually to have something that may be able to overcome Well, that's not at odds with anything I'm saying. That's certainly not at odds with anything I'm saying. Well, if you have the 100 by 100 grid of defined traits that can be plus or minus a certain number, the ability... So, okay, how how does... But what are the possible number of combinations of that? And how would we possibly begin to imagine how various traits combined could produce emergent results? So some of these traits must be traits that can be affected through natural life. They must be traits yes. that can either be well, language is or part gained. Of exactly. Yeah, so lang- it's not just... We're not just talking about genetics here. We're talking about information yeah. on all levels. Yeah. And in order to have so this, this and the language can change within a lifetime. Certainly. Certainly. So yeah. So there's the principle of um, not necessarily cognitive growth, but emergence through uh, what's the term? There's a term associated with kind of a growth in complexity. And the problem with the hundred by hundred grid is that the complexity is defined by the grid. So the complexity of the environment, sure, you can get a lot of really interesting things out of it, but you're not going to, you're not going to move beyond that complexity. You might find problems that go up to the edge of that complexity, but you're still going to be bound by the complexity I'm of the not, hundred. I'm not convinced grid. of that at all. Well, it's pretty, it's, it's an abstract idea, not, but yeah. it's pretty easy to, well, you know, I mean, the right. mathematics, I'm sure, mm-hmm. is fine. But, mm-hmm. I mean, just because it works out in mathematics doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of the story. Well, it's interesting because if you if you create simulation environments that aren't bounded by that degree of complexity, you not well, only find faster... Well, listen, I'm not suggesting... I'm just saying 10,000 would be a nice way to start this mm-hmm. thing. You got to, you, you know, since my computer does have some limits Mm -hmm. and my brain does too. But Mm -hmm. again, whether this has anything to do with my brain is beside the point. Yeah, you would hope it didn't. 
Yeah, well, whatever. Anyway, yeah, so ideally you'd want to go as far as you can. But in the meantime, I, I thought 10,000 is sufficiently complex to, to explore the possibilities. So there was a fellow called Tom Ray who had a similar principle. Um, I don't think it was 10,000. It was fewer than that because he was dealing with older computers at the time. <laughs> yeah, so it was probably a, well, a hundred would be enough. Well, I think it was, I think it. Yeah. it was in that order. It was somewhere yeah, between a yeah. hundred and a thousand. Would, that would be a fine place to start. He found that boring within about two years worth of study. And then he started looking at how he could create unbounded complexity in these kind of simulation environments. And ultimately, well, maybe he found it boring because he didn't have enough creativity to figure out how to use it right. Well, that would be my argument as well. But I'm talking maybe, about a Maybe human. not. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm talking about a human here. And, yeah, I think ultimately also it's interesting, actually, because I've reflected over the past couple of weeks, particularly associated with the demise of FreshSim.org, that the artificial life community has shot itself in the foot so many times through exactly this problem. <laughs> that It's interesting, actually, that I'm finding more inspiration currently from the model rail community in quite a strange <laughs> sense, because... They have yeah. a sense of hope and optimism that keep them building and creating, irrespective of, you know, the fact that they're alone in their own basements. And it is it is interesting, this notion. Mind you, the group is considerably larger. And I think that's something well, that I'm also... It's fascinating, saying. you know, that... I mean, I remember when, you know, I was a kid, we had ours mm -hmm. lay out in the, in the garage, you know, but I, I, I never really thought about it again. It was just... Mm. Something, it was kind of it was really neat actually. I remember going out there at night and watching the the light on the locomotive coming around in the dark. Mm. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, the fact that people continue with that, there's some part of yeah, yeah. That's just yeah. What is that? Is that an identifiable? See, that may be one of our ten thousand identifiable <laughs> traits. I mean, it, it may show itself in other places too. It's not just model railroad. This yeah. idea of miniaturizing stuff and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, watching it—it it really is sort of hypnotic. That's a big part of it. Is the mm -hmm. movement? It's a, whole, yes. it's a real autistic thing. <laughs> you know, it's a special topology in this terrain of the brain. Certainly. That would be an identifiable one, probably. Without question. And unfortunately, its next-door neighbor would probably be hoarding. Um, well, who knows? Yeah. Or yeah, see, this would be fascinating some, if we yeah. could actually test this stuff and experiment yeah. with it. Yeah. How, what is it related to? What is it similar to? Mm. It, obsessive compulsive, so-called obsessive compulsive uh, what so capability cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes as i was sitting here the song associated with uh the lime and the coconut came into my head and through the week part of this 10 hours of netflix thing i watched a documentary on harry nilsson do you know harry nilsson's work um you know i've heard the name i've heard some of the music but it didn't yes didn't leave much of an impression no, it didn't with me either actually and when i originally started watching this documentary about two months ago i turned it off almost instantly because i thought i really don't want to hear another see another documentary <laughs> apparently he was very popular amongst uh, some people anyway well john lennon amongst others oh okay so, yeah cool so i decided because i think through Earlier in the week, I had taken a photograph of a cat. God, about... John Lennon is now unassailable. <laughs> no, John... he's, he's, he's more than fallible through this discussion. <laughs> so <laughs> I, had taken, just, yeah, okay. I had taken a photograph of one of our cats lying down. Actually, he was, he was snuggled up next to me, so it's just my hand and the cat. 
And I wrote, people let me tell you about my best friend, which is actually a Harry Nielsen or a line from a Harry Nielsen song. And I realised, actually, I probably should watch this documentary if I'm now quoting the fellow on Facebook. Yeah. The thing that struck me about it is that he's the one of the more insipid, like, musicians, and the stuff that he does, I don't think is musically brilliant. A lot of it is kind of bit elements. Although his stuff is used very heavily in commercials, uh, television commercials. <laughs> in particular, television yeah. commercials sure. from my childhood. Yeah. Which is, yeah. was, I found particularly curious. It's all part of the his... plan from the beginning. Yes. Well, that was the thing, is actually, <laughs> he was like a publishing, he was like a publishing person. He never toured. All he did yeah, was yeah. wrote music for either other people or for, you know. For these, advertisers. These, yeah, these, yeah, these bit things yeah but um oh, but that's a fine thing to do some some people you know work at the gas department it's it's a real profession it's a real job yeah, yeah. And, and he was quite good at it he'd made a good living at yes it too. but in the funny thing is he spent most of his life as an alcoholic and a heavy cocaine user <laughs> but all of this well it's right actually, he could afford it it's certainly how is he dead now yeah no he died in the early 90s he died the day of the la earthquake actually so you might know where you were then <laughs> the big one yeah I, well actually you know i don't know i've lived in la all my life and we've had so many years well there was one in the <laughs> early 90s which caused bridges cut to collapse yeah yeah that was the one up in big bear yes yeah maybe yeah anyway there, wasn't actually, uh, yeah, and I was actually at ground zero. No, I, you've told that. me the story. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, about that, was a, that was a big Coming outside and emerging out with all the other humans and yeah, being yeah. part of that thing. Yeah, the, the end, it was here. This was it. L.A. was gone. You know? Yes. <laughs> well, so you hoped. <laughs> no, man, I was worried. I'll tell you, it was scary. Yes. The thing that struck me about the Harry Nielsen documentary is that all, in most documentaries, Folks that abused drugs and alcohol to the extent that this fellow did, it would have been like a negative, horrible thing about this is the thing that killed him. Yeah. But when covered by a group of musicians, it was almost like he was a really good time. You know, <laughs> we went out all the time. Yeah, we got stoned. Yeah, man. Just, and this this, good sto- time, this Harry. story of um <laughs> when the Smothers Brothers. Of I don't even know how I refer to the Smothers Brothers. The Smothers, that's enough. If you don't know who they Certainly. are, then you anyway, it doesn't make any difference. There's this account of Harry Nilsson and John Lennon going to the Smothers Brothers, I don't know, reunion tour, the first leg of this, just being belligerent drunk and eventually being thrown out. John Lennon and uh, this guy. Harry Nilsson, yeah, yes. He got, dr- got thrown out of the, the Smothers okay, Brothers good. reunion. <laughs> And there were all these kind of strange vignettes through this documentary. But oh, so far, so good, man. Yeah. <laughs> it left me with a sense that sometimes it's okay to be mediocre. Like You know, you know some people just, like I say, work at the gas company all their life, you know? And they have kids, and then, you know, fuck, what the hell? What can you say? And other people, you know, it's all there. It's all possible. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've been pondering this, and it really was an incident this week. I got out of the shower first thing this morning, or not this morning, um, a couple of mornings ago, and I went to brush my hair and I looked in the mirror. And I've Uh kind of been going through this phase recently, particularly because my spiritual advisor had a photograph of me two years ago. And she said to me, quite explicitly based on this photograph, Netflix (laughs) has really aged you. Ah, Like, you look visually very different. Really? And I looked in the mirror at this kind of leathery face, (laughs) and, you know, and I was just combing my hair, and I realized 
at this rate, I'm going to end up looking like Heron in, a, you know, 10 years' time. I'm just, I'm not going to survive through the 40s particularly well. Um, and I just thought to myself, I need to do something. I need to, like, just acknowledge this thing that has been the past however many years of my life. And acknowledge that I need to detoxify from it as well. You need to realize that you're a brain-damaged language. I've gone that far, Aaron. Yeah, okay. Well, and then all your stories are just your stories, and now it's time to start taking responsibility for your stories. Yes. No, I I mean, look, that's what the haggard monkey that looked back at me through the mirror (laughs) acknowledged. Full frontal. Yeah, no question. Yeah, I know. I know. That's that's it. It is a call to reality, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's that R word again, Aaron. But moving on from that, well, we'll just ignore that word. Yes. No, you're right, man. I look at my skin, and I, you know, at 68, I realize, you know, it doesn't look like it did when I was 30. Mm. <laughs> you know, it, it's not bad, actually. I'm I'm really quite pleased with the way I've aged so far. Mm-hmm. But still, <laughs> you know, if I don't have to look all that carefully to see the signs of age. <laughs> yes, I guess the thing that struck me was that I needed to start to embrace the deteriorating monkey more than I've been. I, I, the monkey has always been a vehicle for me, as you've described for you as well. Yeah. And there was a period of time in my life where I s- seriously distrusted my own existence. More than the stuff that we have described, I really got a sense that I was just sitting in the back row of some seedy cinema in San Francisco <laughs> watching, watching this documentary spectacle. on this shit. Where Called I couldn't my leave life. the documentary... I probably wanted to go pee, but I was actually just stuck watching this thing. And I went for a period of time, actually, where if I put my hand, and this is prior to my spiritual advisor, but if I put my hand down on the bed and felt warmth when I woke up, it would actually shock me. I mean, it was really that level of kind of disconnection from the monkey. And through this period of time, I mean, particularly because it occurred mainly, well, leading up to when I lived here in 2000, but also very much while I was here in 2000, I realized that I basically abused my body. Yeah. yeah, I don't sleep enough as I should. I spend all my time in this kind of intellectual (laughs) domain. I've really not done a lot. You're, I don't remember who it was that said it now. It might have been George Burns, but he mm. said if he knew he was going to live this long, he would have taken better care of himself. Yeah. <laughs> the main thing that occurs to yeah. me through this is that if, <laughs> if, if I take my four grandparents and work out how long they lived, how they deteriorated, and ultimately you know, what their end of life quality of life was like, I really have a series of of bizarre and somewhat strange possibilities, and 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 others besides that. True, yeah, and many in between, no doubt, including you know killed in road traffic accidents. Yeah, well, there's all like sorts of. Yes. It's, it's interesting to observe that, but it doesn't have a lot necessarily to say about what's going to happen to you. Well. I don't know. It's not that I'm fatalistic. I just see that there is a humor in the simulation, which tends to be uh, ironic comedy that occurs at particular (laughs) points. And within this ironic comedy, I've been very, very lucky up until now. Oh, yes. Luck is a major... (laughs) I attribute every... Yeah, the fact that I'm still here at all is is attributable to nothing but just damn good luck. Yes. A number of swift dice rolls through that period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Uh, 
So one of the topics that I wanted to explore, and you may be hesitant to talk about this. Oh, then let's not even bring it well, up. No, no, I want to bring <laughs> it up because then you can knock me down, and then we can we can. Okay. Beyond right. adultery. I warn you right now, I probably don't want to talk about it. Beyond but, adultery. But, oh, I love that. That's a great title. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's a damn good title. So do you want to talk about that at all? Sure. So what are you going to talk about within Beyond Adultery? Well, I've got 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they're... The whole thing is... <laughs> well, from what I can see, basically Jack, the guy who's put this together, they're having a thing called Calm Week at Fullerton mm -hmm. College, okay? And in conjunction with that... Uh, and I'm not quite sure. I think uh, Jack teaches in um, in the communication department or something. Mm -hmm. But anyway, over the he's taught there for a long time, and over the years he's uh, really strongly affected a number of students. You mm -hmm. know, changed their lives, you could say. And so he's developed a kind of cult, not cult, but a following. I mean, of people on campus who take his courses and uh, and graduates who have been in his courses. And uh, and that's how I met him because he has these dinners every once in a while at a local restaurant in you know, like twenty or thirty Japanese restaurant, there. right? No, it was a Mexican restaurant. Oh, okay, but so he's different to the Japanese restaurant one. Um, apparently. Okay. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so he's got his own following. So base, and he's written a couple books, and he just just wrote a new one, and mm -hmm. and really he's put this together. I think is a sort of promotion deal for his new book, mm -hmm. and he's invited several people, basically his friends, to come and talk over a week. Well, no, on this one night, on, on okay. third, Wednesday night, I guess it is, the 23rd, uh, they've got this particular auditorium, and uh, he's basically going to do a sort of TED idea thing. Uh -huh. He's going to have like five speakers. Except it's a double minutes. TED because he's doing 20 minutes, not the 10. Well, whatever. Yes. You know, any, anyway, that's the sort of, the sort of idea. Mm -hmm. And so for the most part, I think the audience is going to be made up of his groupies and their friends. Mm -hmm. And and a certain um, amount of people from the campus in general might show up, I suppose, and potentially Marie Camacho, Justin, Dave well, Roll. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, I mean, if you want to come, you're certainly welcome to come. I don't really mm -hmm. care, but I don't. Well, in any case, it's it's an ideal situation for me because most of the people there. I mean, and Jack's stuff is not all that different from mine. I mean, he focuses on completely different things. But anyway, mm. the stuff he's pushing and the stuff I'm doing are very compatible. Okay. So, um, so it's an ideal audience for me, uh -huh. <laughs> you know? So, uh, and, and you already know the, well, I don't know. Have we talked about the idea of beyond adultery, what I mean by that? No, that's why I asked you. Oh, 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 I thought that was really obvious. Oh, okay. No, uh, <laughs> okay, thou shalt not commit adultery is the way the word adultery is used. Of course, uh, the way I'm talking about it is don't become an adult. Don't grow up. What what does a grown-up mean? It's the past participle of to grow. Someone who is finished growing, that's a grown-up, an adult. So what I'm suggesting is there is a natural stage of development for human beings beyond sexual maturity. But we have been predisposed because of the story in our head to reject anything after that. We think we've already got it all by the time we're in our early 20s. Mm -hmm. 
uh, when in fact there's a thing called epistemological maturity mm-hmm. that can show up usually in the early 30s at the earliest. Sometimes it can show up quite early in, in wow. even very young people. But it, it appears that it takes a number of years of beating your head against the wall before you begin to get the idea that maybe you ought to rethink things. Mm. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that's my basic premise is that there's a stage beyond what you call adulthood. Uh, called epistemological maturity, and the central feature is breaking the identification with the voice in the head. The voice in the head has ruled humans forever since since we were you know little scurrying rats. <laughs> That's an interesting. Well, so I would argue that the the nature of the cat voice in the cat head. Mm-hmm. Because I've had the opportunity to study this frequently. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting thing. Because actually the kinds of narratives and the kinds of reinforcement is very different from cat to cat. Uh, but they yeah. do appear yeah. to have a complementary story yeah. that is very much part... So, for example, we... we well, have there's a- part that's genetic and there's mm-hmm. part that's uh, that's learned. I think... Vastly more is probably learnt. We have a we have a street cat. Yeah, when you we talk about cats, one yeah. street cat yeah. in our midst, and he his eyes will glaze over in certain circumstances. He's actually been a feature of the Stone Ape podcast for the past four years. He's the cat that likes El Pollo Loco in particular. <laughs> he is a very curious character because he's also huge. He's like I don't know thirty more. I think 38 inches from nose to tail. He's a big Have cat. you weighed him? He, he's, he weighs almost nothing currently because he's now in the stage of his life that some animals get to where basically he can't keep food down. He's been very lucky over the past few days. He's had meals that he's been able to keep down. But he weighs about well, he's, 11 he's pounds. Dying, man. Okay. He's in the point where his organs are, will be consumed yeah. by his body. Yeah, yeah. He's at the end of life. Well, so you provide a good place for him to experience that. That's good. exactly what we're doing. But his narrative is very curious because he will switch to the street cat. And he almost has this look of, I have no control over this. I'm just going to go after this food. In fact, as we were talking, <laughs> he was hovering over our garbage bin in the kitchen looking as if he was uncontrollably about to pounce into it because that is very much his narrative um but yeah it is a very strong internal narrative we have another cat the one that has the seizures um where prior to his seizure period he had three or four quite distinct characters that he would play he had a character that was like from some kind of bruce lee ninja movie (laughs) that would do kind of strange movements he had a very protective character um, that, you know, liked certain things. He had yeah. a kind of adventurous character, but they were all distinct characters that he would ebb and flow between. Yeah. We have another cat that is extremely authoritarian. He's very <laughs> interested that everything is done exactly right. If there's another cat mucking up, he'll walk up to the cat, slap him around the face, and then walk off. He's a very curious creature because if you hold him for an extended period of time, he becomes irritated. And then as soon as you let him go, he will go and find the nearest cat and discipline that cat for its bad behavior and then go off and be perfectly normal. Sounds so, like an asshole cat. Exactly. Just like that asshole duck. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting, actually. I was walking home through the week and the asshole ducks, they, their water has dried up. So most of the other ducks have fled, except for a few asshole ducks that are like wandering around. <laughs> a few the assholes are yeah. still hanging around. Yeah, the assholes, the rest have flown away, but the asshole ducks have a territorial... 
you know, affiliations of this monk pond now. But yeah, so I agree with you that um, a wide variety of critters have internal narratives that aren't voiced. See, I think once we get that language is not primarily for communication, that Mm. that's a secondary function. Its primary function is to allow us to navigate. It's a a map of our environment and and a way for us to make sense out of it and chunk it and label things Mm -hmm. that are meaningful and make a difference. And all that can be done internally. Where our environment also includes a wide variety of other primates that we are... Well, now, yeah, it's, it's all changed now. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking about, you know, historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. now it, it, you can't get language out of it anymore for us. Yeah. You can't talk about... I mean, even a child, from the moment they're born, they're already involved in language. They've had it from in, from in the womb. So, you know, it, it we can't... It, we, we can't ever experience the absence of language the way a dog does, or at least the kind of language that we have. It's interesting, actually, in your description of adultery here, because you started off with a description that is very much analogous to Peter Pan in a very abstract sense. You know, the little boy who <laughs> refuses to grow up. No, no, but, that's but not at all. Exactly. Yeah, no, this about. is the point I was going to make. It's about you, growing past being an adult. This is exactly the point I was going to make. And you then almost kind of redefined your parameters associated firstly, which I think is actually very interesting, this notion that it, it requires a certain degree of um, wisdom. It takes a little bit of time. Yeah, you need to beat your head against the wall for. Well, see, if children were raised properly, they they wouldn't have to go through any of this bullshit. But what I'm talking about is when you're starting off with 20 year old brain damaged language monkeys, then then this all this stuff I'm talking about is is what applies. If children were raised properly, none of this would even be an issue. So in saying this, you've reminded me of one component of the transgender documentary that I want to discuss. And that is that within the community of Model Rail Radio, there are people who are very active and very fulfilling contributors, but also who view themselves as being conservatives, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And part of this is actually, I don't... Normally, I wouldn't care about offending these kind of people yeah. with my actions. But because yeah. they're active contributors, and I actually yeah. have a great year for well, Why don't you have a work. show on that? Well, this is the interesting thing. My view is actually to individually approach them and talk yeah. to them explicitly about yeah. this. I, I don't yeah. imagine they would have too many problems associated with this, but you never yeah. know. I think you're right. I think a Skype call is mm-hmm. neat. Yeah. Yeah, you need to talk to these people and say, look, here's an issue that's come up. (laughs) But returning to your point associated with adultery, I think that's an interesting, there's an interesting, you know, cross pollination with those two ideas that in creating this notion of the language monkey and the language machine and all these kind of things. And actually, Andy Dixon, the fellow who had only listened to one episode recently came and joined the Stone 8 Facebook group cementing the fact that he is a true listener uh, to this particular recording. But the whole nature of the description is... I'm, I'd be interested... This thing is being videotaped, right? This Beyond Adultery tour? I'm not sure. As, he, he wants it, yes. Okay. And, and apparently it will be, but <laughs> I had to sign a video release. Wow. So... Wow. Um, would we be able to get the video? I imagine, uh, <laughs> yes, when it's, uh, mm. yeah, I imagine all this will be available. I mean, that's, that's why he's doing it. He's but doing it to promote him, his stuff. And, what and we do with video it. is considerably more abstract than what someone at Cal State Fullerton might do with video. 
I mean, my view is... Well, they'll probably put it on YouTube. Well, let's hope that's a start, Herod. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm assuming he's going to do it. Well, that would be my hope, but many people haven't gotten to that. Well, I'll I'll make make sure he's aware of that. And similarly, I I personally would like it for the Internet Archive to put into the Stone Ape feed as well, potentially. Are we willing to go that far? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not going to promise anything. You know, I may just go up there and have a stroke, (laughs) you know, and fall on the floor. <laughs> so, Avery, you know, I don't know what's I don't know what's going to yeah. happen. I understand. You know? I'm not trying to presuppose anything. Yeah, ever, yeah, but. yeah. No, I'm assuming it's going to be fun. You yeah. Know? For me, I mean, I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't going to be fun for me. Yeah. So I'm I'm just trying to figure out. Okay, I'm going to have a group of uh, Jack, uh, you know, followers. And uh, and his stuff is right in alignment with my stuff, so mm. I'm just going to go there and sort of lay some real hard lines on them, straightforward, and just see how it goes. Mm. Yeah, I do hope there will be some Stone Ape listeners there as well. Well, it, it's okay with me. Like I say, I don't have a problem with that. I really don't give a damn. Yes. <laughs> Marie Camacho, Justin, I'm looking at you two in particular here. <laughs> Facebook photos, please. It would be fun, you know, it, especially if Marie and, and what's your boyfriend's name? Justin. Justin, yeah. Especially if they came up and introduced themselves. Definitely. That, that would be cool. Yeah. But, uh, you know. April well, 23rd, people. Mark it off in your calendars. Yeah, I don't even know what the parking is. You know, I'm really beginning to think this is going to be a pain in the ass. You know, I mean, it'll be worth it. But, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know what the parking situation yeah. is. Cal State Fullerton's an interesting place, though. It is? Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of it's kind of... <laughs> in terms, as Tell you, me about it. As you say, <laughs> the parking situation, all these kind of things. I mean, am I going to get an executive parking place right next to the auditorium so that I can go in and give my very important speech? My view is that when you used to spend your time walking the neighborhoods for three hours, you were probably getting the kind of exercise that you'll be needed for. Yeah, but I can't. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too. See, and I can't really do that anymore. That's one of the problems of my particular monkey dotage. (laughs) You know, I'm actually looking at I may have to have hip replacement surgery at some point. I've heard nothing but positive things about that. That's what I've heard, too. Yeah. So I guess nowadays they've got that down pretty good. Yeah. So it's just about, uh, I mean, it's not that bad, but I'm, I'm not doing very much walking because it's just not really all that much fun. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know? I have an aunt who had her hip replaced, and I've had various participants in Model Rail Radio have had their hips replaced. Yeah. They speak very positively about it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard. So that's, and I can get it done. The VA yep. will do it. So, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what are the not, benefits not, of being shelled in the jungle? Yeah. Well, I still have some more weight to lose. Yes. I want to dump is I want to get down to where I should be before I make any decisions about anything else. So. Yeah, we'll see. Or though the two can go together. I mean, no, no, no. I mean, there's who knows if I I, I probably have another twenty five pounds to go, mm. and um, that you don't know what difference that could make. Certainly. You know, that, that there could be a threshold. There could yeah. be a threshold there. You yeah. know, that beyond that threshold, the hips are not a problem. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, but I, and there's no way to know that. Like I say, I've got to deal with my part of it first, Certainly. and then uh, if that doesn't solve it, then then the next step is surgery. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or actually, at this point, it's not that bad. But uh, so we'll see. Anyway, there are a lot of options. I'm really lucky to have the options that I do. Certainly. I mean, Shit, really. <laughs> you know, it really is interesting how how we how at least I am an actor at times. I'm quite aware of, of the fact that the way I use my voice and uh, 
and language and everything uh, could easily be uh, explained as as a kind of performance. You know? Well, doesn't that fit right into the whole nature oh, of the language machine? Oh, oh and, of course. Yeah, yes, yes, of course it does. It's just, like I say, understanding the concept and getting it in real life are often not quite the same thing. <laughs> you know, yes. They're independent. The concept is relatively easy to understand, but the implications of understanding that show up in so many interesting places. <laughs> mm. I wanted to kind of close the topic that we discussed over the past two recordings as well, associated with furries. <laughs> and the furry community. Yeah. Uh-oh, have we offended somebody? No, not at all, actually. I mean, what was interesting this week... Fuck was, the furries! <laughs> ...was that I had the opportunity to talk to Tracy Portillo specifically about furries. Yeah. Because I made an attribution to her last week that she acknowledged that um, she had more knowledge associated with the furry community at a time that we discussed maybe four years ago. Once again, ladies and gentlemen... Tom Barbelay has a slightly different view of things than people that I've referenced here. Tracy claims no knowledge of the furry community, although she did make the point that now she knows how much the fursuits cost to make, she might be swayed into making some of these fursuits in the future. <laughs> right, damn right, it's a good market. <laughs> in fact, what she said basically was that she has limited memory of, you know, what happens... She's wiped all of that out. Yeah, and the furry discussion was just one that has been lost the seeds of time for her. Although I have pretty good memories of it. Do you have a recording of it? uh, Yes, and it's in the Stone Ape feed. Okay, well, so there you go. So people can actually go back and hear that recording, and that actually makes reference to a conversation that we'd had two years ago. So Marie's a fucking liar. No, Tracy here. You've got to to get our female listeners. Okay, well, it's, you know, one chick or another, you know, whatever. (laughs) Actually, what was really interesting through the week was we had a new female listener join the group, and someone rejected her. Someone rejected her. I I suspect it might have been someone I'm talking to. Well, who could reject somebody? Well, this. Well, apparently you have the choice now of whether. Well, I know I can allow people. I've never rejected anybody. Someone rejected this person. It could have been my spiritual advisor. Oh, wait a minute. You know what might have been? Yeah, there was no name. I thought that was a. I was thinking that was for me personally. No. I rejected a friend. Yeah, okay. I, I'm not sure where it is. Because there was no name. I went and looked at the, the page. Was it like a sunset? There, I don't remember what it was now. Yeah. But there was no person. There's nobody identifiable as anybody there. And I said, fuck it. You know, you're out of here. Yes. I, I and wanna- that was actually a real person who found Stone Ape through another set of, you're part of this group and she's actually listened to a number of the recordings and she seemed like a really interesting person actually and great then come in as a real human being and tell did. me who you are no no i befriended yeah. her and said i'm sorry you were rejected here let me bring you into the stone Ape group yeah. she also went to the same community college my wife I- did so okay cool all right good yeah well i don't apologize for that (laughs) and i'd do the same thing again if i get an anonymous request no 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 this was through stone ape heron well no i'm just saying through stone ape i mean i i'm here to build a community yes you know and uh not somebody selling you know their new age formulas or something i don't know it's interesting because i went on the group that she had come from that you were also a member of and it seemed to be a whole in what group is that let me let me find this let's julie fields is who she is welcome julie i'm glad you're here i'm sorry i'm not sorry i rejected you i didn't reject you julie i rejected that fake ID that I saw. It wasn't a fake ID, Heron. Well, like whatever it 
was. It wasn't a human being. It's a group that you're a part of as well, Harry. Maybe I should go through your well, stuff. Well, I don't know. I don't know what it could be. Yeah, I, I have to un like a un- bunch of shit. There's a whole bunch of shit that I've probably liked and probably now regret it. So the funny thing about this group uh, that you both belong to <laughs> was that it seemed to mainly be people who were talking about various kind of chakra meditation techniques. Really? And oh, it was well, really- shit, I really have to unlike that one. <laughs> and I just thought okay. to myself, how... Well, the thing is, some of them actually have some little parts of the, of the thing really right about language and the mind and stuff. When I see that, when I, and despite all the bullshit and the nonsense, I can see that, yeah, if, if I could put this in a slightly different language, they'd actually get this. Well, I don't know if it's that important. I, 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 no, no, I because like I found it absolutely fascinating that, that you yeah. and she shared this interest and she yeah. used that. E-W-A-O-F and E-W-A-O. You're actually a member of E-W-A-O-2. Yeah, that's a group. Yeah, that's uh, a group uh, who are interested in the concept of E-prime, and I think we've talked about that before. I don't recall talking specifically about that. E-prime is English minus the verb to be. Wow, you are absolutely right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And that group is devoted to, uh, although it doesn't, nobody does it. So we, we, some of us try, but the one thing that's brought us there is an awareness of the fact that the verb to be is really not all that useful. <laughs> yes. So there was one video that I watched for about 20 minutes associated with Kundalini. Kundalini. Kundalini, Kundalini yoga. Yoga. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. And- yeah. And I'm associated with Kundalini. Well, yeah, I I can see why. Yeah, because there are some aspects of that that, again, that map very nicely to the stuff I'm talking about in language. Uh, so, yeah, I can well, understand why. The, yeah. the thing that struck me about, and this is what, look, I'm going to be spending a, a day with Bruce Damer. Bruce Damer has become almost yogi-like in terms of his his levity zone cultivation. And <laughs> it, has, it has the effect offensive kind of new age music as part of it so you and i probably will not be listening to this but i was listening to the kundalini woman talking great depths about kundalini and then she shows the picture of where the chakras are based and this just looks like the genital chakra yeah right well like i say all that shit i i know nothing about it really and really don't give a shit about it well that's what interested me because these are the kinds of things that were coming on this E prime, which is English minus the really? B side. Well, I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, like I said, well, like I said, there is some overlap there. Uh, I, I can see that. It's just that I mean, there's more to those things than just the sexual aspect or uh, that. You know, I mean, it's tied in with a whole system, and other parts of that system map very nicely to this idea of the language machine and other stuff. It's just the language they use is really convoluted and stupid. So my sense is I've probably befriended somebody in this arena because I could see that they actually could understand what I was talking about and that I could probably say it better than the shit they've been reading. Hmm. But you don't really have much to map onto Kundalini, fundamentally, Heron. Not much. Well, only only the aspects of it that relate to language. Hmm. Yes. Which, in terms of Kundalini, doesn't appear to be very much. Well, no, I say, like I say, Kundalini is only part of a larger system. I understand. And the other part of the system, if you buy into Kundalini, you're buying the whole system. Yes. And part of the old system 
involves a, a relationship with language and stuff. Although they don't talk about it that way, it's easy to take what they've said and interpret it the way I'm talking about it in a way that makes a hell of a lot more sense. Yes. It's interesting, actually, because I'm going to be spending time with Bruce Damer that his whole new rap, or should I say new age rap, when I talk to him, tends to map down on very easy to define things in his and my interaction. It's almost, it's not like he's apologizing for it. It's like he's trying, he understands on some (laughs) level where I am, maybe on some level. And he just realizes that we can rap about a variety of topics as you and I do, but it's probably better to be on topics that we have a lot to rap about. And it's interesting actually, because some of the levity zones, so one of the liberty zones that I've listened to is associated with the appreciation of transcendental occurrences, for want of a better term. Things that transcend almost, um, not necessarily supernatural, but things outside the, the boundaries of understanding that can occur to people through various times in their lives. Some would attribute this to religious experiences, but sometimes they're just very strange experiences. I've had a few of these through my life, and I acknowledge them in some regard, but it's interesting when you focus your time on these things, and then you almost become like a devotee of them. And it was quite interesting to hear this whole notion that these are, you know, sacred experiences that need to be eulogized and explored. I don't view them necessarily in that light. Well, see, I don't even think we've defined the subject yet. Okay, so... I don't even know what the fuck we're talking about. Okay, that's always a good start. (laughs) So, I guess they are experiences that are outside the standard, you know, set of experiences. Well, synchronicity is a good one, but synchronicity is a little bit too trivial. Look, see, all of this, this is all so fucking simple. It's a story. Yes. They're not talking about reality. Well, that's... They're just talking about their fucking story. Yes, but if And basically, choose... it's a dumb one. Well, their choice is to focus on aspects of their story which are outside the broader understanding, which almost <laughs> is like one step away from Heronstone 101. Well, I'd say more power to them. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. I would help if you learned a little bit about the way language functions. That's all. You know, if you want to check that out, come and talk to me. Mm. You really need a Kundalini equivalent YouTube video, Heron. (laughs) Yoga. Yeah, Gendo meets Kundalini. Yes. No, I probably don't think that's going to happen. No, 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 no. Look, (laughs) I I should actually post the Kundalini video to the Stone Ape Facebook group. So, firstly, you can study it. But secondly, you can... I'm not thinking you embody the style. But what I'm saying is that you realize how you frame the message is an interesting well problem. marketing is is a i mean is a nasty word but yeah. i mean really if you're going to try and change people's minds then you have to do it in a way that they're going to be open to that happening yes and um that only makes sense doesn't it <laughs> yes yeah framing is an interesting problem and it's actually yeah, it, one that i'm exploring yeah. and you're exploring because whenever you talk to a group yeah. you have to really be well that's one that. yeah that's what i'm one of the, i mean this is going to be real interesting you know i'm going to have 50 people in front of me and i can do any goddamn thing i want yeah. and it's a group that that is not going to you know balk at some strange ideas mm. you know so uh it, it's just it's wonderful you know I'm having a strange relationship currently with daylight saving. I hate it. So your hatred of daylight saving? Oh, I, maybe I overstate the case. 
I, I'm just I'm just aware that it takes me. Uh, I still haven't quite gotten over it yet. Yeah, uh, but I'll be I'll be okay in there a few days. But yeah, it definitely screws me up for a couple <laughs> for a couple of days. Yeah, no, I mean I'm feeling that as well, and I think it's getting worse as I get older too. As a child, I used to experience it no problem. Even in my early adulthood, I experienced it no problem. Yeah, it was never a problem until the last few years. Uh, but now, well, I, I don't know. Now I'm feeling the thing about it is, it means I can walk home really easily, and I absolutely love that, and that helps me sleep, which is always really good. It indicates that I should start planting my garden, which I yeah, really it's enjoy. Part of the, the years, the you yeah, know. Yeah, but this whole season. artificial thing associated with time. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. It, it seems that this level of control. Was changing it in a leap like that. I mean, yes. if, if if it was just more gradual, uh, we'd never even notice it. <laughs> you know, yeah, if it was a few minutes every day for a yeah, month, yeah, then it yeah, would be. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't even notice it. We'd just acclimate to the whole process, and it would not be a problem at all. The problem is that actually time in terms of its quantifiable measure, is really done in a kind of human sense in the hour. I mean, ideally it would be in the 15 minutes, but really the hour is the break. No, it's the minute, well, as far as I'm concerned. Well, as far as you're concerned, maybe as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I think I think we need to reject time. Actually, seconds. Actually. Well, no, I don't think that, that's essential. You can't, that's, a, that's the one thing <laughs> that we really can count on <laughs> is time. Well, you know? no, it's the, well, well, it's interesting. It's the one thing that's systematized and then moved onto us. Well, it means we, you and I can trade my time for your time, and we can negotiate that. Yes, but I mean, look, it, it can work out in such a way, and this is what happens with model rail radio. I mean, although I start the show at a set time, and there will be people who will be waiting there at that time, yeah. I'm relatively confident that through the five to seven hours that I record model rail radio, people will come on through that time. Sure, as there are a lot of to it. Yeah, of course, yeah. that for that long a thing, that's very different. I wouldn't tolerate that if I'm, and I won't in my Gendo class. It's going to start at whatever time it starts. You're either there or you're you're. If you're not there, period. Yes. But that is very much, I mean. But I, that's different. Right? I say that's a whole different thing. I, I recall one Stone Ape recording when we were in Vegas where, for whatever reason, I think because I had a pile of books, I said to you, I'm going to be a sec. I put the pile of books up on a shelf. A whole series of books then fell down on me. I then had to rearrange the books. And when I got back... Oh, you didn't have to rearrange them at that time. No, no. Well, except they were all over the floor. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You chose. You chose. Ah, yes. And we encountered this when we discussed this previously. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Yes. My existential space is less important than your perception of time. Well, like I say, it's just one of those those things (laughs) that we could be aware of. Again, those are the kinds of things that we don't think of as being worthy of being aware of. Yes. You know, but there are all sorts of things that you and I consider to be really crucial to be aware of that people two or three hundred years ago couldn't even imagine. Yes. Is that anybody could possibly be concerned with any of that shit? What the fuck are they even talking about? It does start you know? to worry me. I mean, certainly the Facebook messaging. I keep my phone at arm's length in the evening and I turn off the notifications. But when I wake up in the morning, typically between, you know, five thirty, six o'clock, I will reach my arm out, pick up the phone to get the time. But in that interaction, I now immediately on the front screen get the Facebook messages, including yeah. our friend yeah, right, Jimmy yeah. in South Australia telling me that he's, yeah. you know. Well, you can turn that off. You know? Well, yes, I can. In fact, really, I can unplug all of that. In fact, yeah, the whole right. nature of yeah. having the phone so close is problematic yeah. as well. But no, it's not really. It's just how you set up the phone. That's all. It won't give you, won't interrupt you at all. 
Anyway, go on. Well, the fact that it's there. Well, that's good. I use it as a uh, as an alarm clock. Yeah. So you know, and a watch. Well, no, I, and yeah, because I have an iPad too. So I don't, the phone is just a phone and a clock and an alarm clock, and that's about it. Yeah. And and, a, and an iPod. I use it to listen to music. But other than that, uh, why would I use an iPhone for anything? You know. Hmm. Well, I just, yeah. Yeah. Email's been broken on my iPhone for months now yeah and i haven't even attempted to rectify no, fact, my email collection yeah. is now better off without it <laughs> something that i do in the evening in fact most of my email now is emails from recruiters yeah and i've gotten really quite swift in responding to these recruiters yeah you got a stack uh, yeah a response you can just yeah you know, I, paste I, in and mail it I back say, <laughs> why will you why are you contacting me i already do this job for more money than your outfit is offering oh why you even respond to them because my view is actually it's more because well i get typically five of these a day sometimes i get 10 sometimes <laughs> offering I get you less money than you're making exactly. now to do this. and you and you take your time and respond to them I type very quickly, Heron. It takes less than a minute. <laughs> okay. Well, my view is actually I say, when I consider seconds, like you know, yeah. The, well, the look, standard. Yeah. Through the melees of this nonsense, either you respect me or you don't respect me. And my view is actually that if I can earn the respect of these people, there may eventually come an opportunity, although it hasn't currently. Uh, okay. But yeah. At least, right, yeah. You know, you're never right. Be polite to people, and it may pay off in the future. You're right. That's absolutely not a bad. Yeah. I mean, it, to operate on. Yeah. I historically yeah. actually I found employment through a relatively small number of people. Yeah. You never I've know. Out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it, part of that is exactly this respect component, and you never really know unless you. Your reputation is very important. That's all you really have in some sense. You know, no, no, no. my reputation has been tarnished at a variety of points in my life, and well, some can't... aspects of it have probably. But I mean, well, again, your reputation is your reputation, whether you crafted it or not. <laughs> no, I've had times of quite solid assaults on my reputation, and I think if you can't walk away and continue your life, you really, you know, your reputation is. This is the discussion associated with Fred and his friend last recording. But you know, you've the notion of a reputation is such a small uh, town kind of thing. Yeah, I'm making. I'm yeah, obviously. Yeah. Rep, that's one of those reifications that need to be <laughs> defined a little more carefully. No, no, I mean, I'm talking about uh, we build the reputation among the people that we have interactions with as whether or not we keep our word or not, mm. and people come to know us. I mean, I know that most people will say anything to get them through the next minute, and they have no intention whatsoever of actually doing some of the shit they say they're going to yeah, do. Yeah, and these are the people that are going to judge you based on your reputation. Well, so or whatever. What I'm talking about is that the reputation thing. I'm talking about, though, is knowing who does what they say they're going to do. And if you are a person who does what you say you're going to do, you will build a reputation. With you? Way. Well, yeah. how frequently does that occur? Well, every time you have an interaction with No, 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 but I'm talking about how, how, I mean, my sense through the relationships that I have cultivated is in general, that level, as you have stated, is not only very rarely met, you're setting yourself up to be oh, disappointed. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I've never partnered with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if I ever do, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's just going to be perfect. Well, Pitchy I don't key. know about that. But well, no, I mean that's, I guess, my point that this notion of a reputation that you stated and the way in which you talk about it can never actually be met by these humans. 
Uh, well, it doesn't mean I'm just talking. I can talk about at work for me. Mm-hmm. I do what I s- say I'm going to do, mm-hmm. and I and I can do what I say I can do, mm-hmm. and I usually do it faster than I say I can do it in, mm-hmm. and everybody knows that, mm-hmm. and that's not an issue. That's what I'm talking about. Reputation. How uh, well? How many people stay at your work long enough for that to be something that is recognized? Uh, well, actually, all the people that have been there. Well, except for one, we got one new editor, but the other people <laughs> have been there long enough to know that. I mean, they may not like me. <laughs> ah, but that's a separate issue. Ah. If you ask them, will he? You know, will he do what he says he can do? And they'll say yes. But if they don't like you, you're not always sure that they're going to say yes, right? Well, that's a separate – no, you're right. That's a separate issue. I'm just saying uh, they have an understanding about that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm I'm willing to stand by that. That's good. The rest of the shit, you're right. That's another issue. One of the things I like doing, because I've had so many jobs over, you know, the past 15-odd years, is when I find people who I work with well – I contact them about other jobs that I see. I'm very, yeah, right. I'm very few people I know actually do this. In fact, none have done this in any meaningful way through my professional career. But I like to reach back and say to people, and I've actually gotten people jobs through this process. But it is an interesting perspective because I've met people, I've worked with people, and I typically have a relatively low impression of them where they talk about their special mentor because their special mentor is never working with them. It's always someone who, you know, they've worked with over a period of time, but they've never actually worked together, which has almost kind of completely eliminated what the mentoring relationship is supposed to be about. So I do understand that people have a number of stories in their kind of professional careers associated with these kind of things. But yeah, the notion of a reputation, I think, is um, it's really a very 1950s kind of concept, Heron. Well, it's a 1750s kind of concept. Well, but the way you use it, particularly in terms of... I'm just saying with the people that I actually interact with, they can count on that I'll do what I say I'm going to do. Period. Yeah, but and they your, know that, and I know that. Well, that's your representation. Yeah, that's of course, that's my story. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I could be completely wrong. Yes. <laughs> but it keeps you happy, and that's the important thing. It's good enough for me. Yes, yes. Well, what else have we got? Complete and utter nihilism, which is the world I live in, Heron. Really? Yeah, that's yes. right. That That is an alternative. You're right. Yes. It's just not as much fun. Well, actually... Well, it is if you're into that Because you can find yeah. other kinds of things in the perspective. <laughs> I mean, my, my view is that if I held this notion of reputation and the things that you've talked about, I would have considerable emotional baggage when I'm professionally screwed. And I'm pretty frequently, I mean, through my career... I, I didn't understand what you just said. If I viewed this notion of reputation, because I do what I say I'm going to do mm-hmm. in the time frame or better than I say I'm going to do it, if I held this to be a golden standard, then when I've had situations where managers and senior managers have shut down companies that I've oh, worked I, in, then I yeah. think I would lose I understand. This Listen, that's of, a complete... Yeah. Well, it's just that's... What I'm talking about is one consideration. There are other considerations that may trump it at times. I'm not quarreling with that. Yeah. I'm just saying that's an, a kind of ideal situation. And I've found that actually it works most of the time. You yeah. know? But there, you're right. There may be times when it's better to play the game. Well, not even play the game. Just acknowledge that... It's a lie. <laughs> well, no, not, I, no. Look, my view is actually that all these things are actually completely independent of me. But any psychological baggage that I put on these things... I mean, I, I've 
we've talked about a guy who committed suicide, but I've had some pretty nightmare bosses through my time. My view <laughs> is that if I embodied this in any way, I would probably be in a crying wreck in the corner. You just have to have a particularly nihilistic perspective <clears throat> associated with this capitalist game that we're thrown into. Well, there are a lot of... See, that's the thing is that everybody really is different. You're, the world you live in, the story you live in is very different than the one I live in. Clearly. I so, mean, you, you've, you haven't yeah. moved... In, you know, you've moved small distances, but you've not packed up your bags and left. I haven't found a better story yet. Yeah. I mean, when I do, I will, Mm. you know, but so far, I mean, and I I probably do need to be convinced pretty thoroughly because actually I think that my personal, yeah, I I think this, the story that I've got right now is like almost unassailable, although it really isn't. I mean, it's, it's getting so simple. We got experience and we got talk about our experience. Mm. That's it. That's 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 it. There's no more to the story. Now this the talk part you can analyze and that gets a little tricky. <laughs> okay. It's real tricky actually. Mm. But but really there's this huge divide between immediate sensory experience and the kinds of brain manipulations that end up in our stories about that experience. Mm. And that that's it. That's the end of the story, except for, like, if you want to look more deeply into the nature of the stories. I am really very interested in the potential that you've discussed in the next few years, either through a legally defined study or some degree of travel or all these kind of things, if a sharp and pointed potentially set of psychedelic experiences would dramatically change mm. your perspective mm. because when i talk how could to it you, not that's <laughs> my assertion <laughs> when i talk to you you seem to be you seem to be at the point of comfort and i will use the word comfort uh-huh. where the only where i'm starting to feel the only possibility through this in terms of Defining the wide variety of things that you've talked about, be it a learning community, be it some form of writing, be it YouTube videos, something needs to set you in a different direction through this process. And I can't imagine through... I think there's some pieces of the puzzle still missing. Yes. Yeah, there's... That's exactly my point. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And Uh, and what you've tried to do quite... Quite honorably, through what you're, you know, what you're calling your sabbatical, (laughs) actually probably requires some kind of like foundational shock in order to move you potentially in a well, in a series of directions that you need to either move in or empower others in. And I guess what I'm getting through the sabbatical period is that rather than completely orthogonal change you're actually kind of reasserting things which have not necessarily produced the body of work that you've been looking towards or looking to the sabbatical to enable you to produce. And I guess, I mean, in my own experience, changing location has had that kind of impact on me. And it's been really profound because you have to completely readjust to a variety of factors. Almost everything. Hell yes. Moving is one of the most traumatic, actually, experiences in life. Mm. You know, the death of a spouse Mm. or losing your job is like the only thing more stressful than moving. Actually, it's interesting because losing one's job and moving, I've usually 
Well, in movies, often your go child. together. Yes, they, <laughs> they go together. Um, and part of it is an assessment that, irrespective of the circumstances that you are in currently, you can either improve or dramatically change your experiences by going well, elsewhere. Yes, all those big stories there. Yes, lots of possibilities. Yes. Yeah. And I guess this is what interests me. I mean, you are in an area where you can actually sign up to one of these map sponsored studies. And potentially, you know, explore a wide variety of areas that you haven't been able to legally. I'm not, at I'm least. I don't really understand what you're talking. The, the map studies are all associated with psilocybin. Some of them are associated oh, okay. with right. MDMA, but mainly okay, I got you. Yeah, there are some legal studies. Ah, exactly. ah, you're suggesting I contact them. Yes. and apply as a subject. Yes. that's an really. That's a. Are there any in LA or Orange County? Uh, there's there are some that I know of in San Diego, and there may be some in LA. But ah, yes. that would be ideal, wouldn't it? That's exactly my point. <laughs> yeah, that would be an ideal situation. Because wow, yeah, I don't think Kundalini is going to help you, Heron. I think you need to <laughs> well, try. Kundalini. I don't know. Kundalini might Kundalini. help you. Well, I did try Kundalini for yes. a while. It didn't help that much. Exactly. You know? I don't think it's going to shock you enough. <laughs> no, no, no. I need, I need uh, DMT. Is what I. Yes. Need. So I, I guess I mean that's my my feedback from, and we've kind of talked. Find about me this. a DMT study, and I'm in. Well, what I need to do is probably put you in contact with Lorenzo Haggerty and just say, Lorenzo, I've been talking to Heron for the past four years. He needs a DMT study. Put him in contact with the right people. <laughs> do it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's clear to me I'm I'm interested in exploring those realms. Mm. Um, but it's you know, I'm not actually pushing. It's not all that important. But if it shows up. <laughs> well, that's my point, actually, is yeah. that some of these times you need to make these things show up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah God, that's going to screw everything. <laughs> that's exactly my point. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what needs to happen here. Cause all this kind of lighthearted banter associated with sabbatical really just kind of returns us to the same conversation. Well, with a little, it's just part of the training. story. It's a story for the folks in the audience. Yeah. You know, there, that's just a story. It's a way to think about what I'm actually doing this year. Mm. Actually, a sabbatical is really not that bad a description for it, really. Well, that's a description you've used yeah, initially. Yeah, yeah, and I'm quite comfortable with that, really, is that I've taken a sabbatical from my sort of obsession to produce something. Mm. And, and I'm just sort of um, taking stuff in. I'm still reading. I'm still working on stuff. But uh, I don't, you know, I don't really know. Uh, my sense is that a school or something like that is going to come out of this process in the next year or so. Mm. But just exactly how that's going to take shape is just not at all clear to me right now. But it's getting clearer. You know, I'm, I've watched some YouTube videos and I, occasionally I hear people saying things and I think, yeah, you know, that actually applies to my relationship to Gendo. Mm. And... Um, so um, my sense is over the next few months or so, uh, more of this stuff is going to come together and, and I'm going to have a clear way to present this that I can live with and and turn it into a business that makes money in a capitalist society. And with that, Heron, even though I'm drinking water, my throat is parched, my lips are dry, I think I need to call it an evening. It's been a pleasure as always. Good night, Tom. Good night, Heron. <laughs>